Well, let's see. Let me just go ahead and uh, introduce myself. Uh, my name's Mike Edinburn, and um, I'm an engineer, mechanical engineer. I worked at Sandia National Labs for 35 years before retiring, and I retired so that I can do things like this, give, give talks like this. Uh, I've been a, a member of the uh, Intelligent Design Network for, uh, uh, for a number of years, and um, I'm not a biologist, and yet I'm going to be giving a talk on biology. And that may seem a little bit strange, but who better than an engineer to understand design? Okay, so I think engineers have a real role to play in this, uh, in this discussion. Um, so today we're going to be talking about design and biology. And I'm going to start off with a little quiz. We have two birds here, an Arctic tern over on the left and the SR-71, the black bird, uh, a spy plane, on the, uh, on the right. Which one's designed? Both designed. Hell, you all know the answer already. Um, we know that the SR-71 was designed because we have all of the evidence, all of the documentation. But what about the Arctic tern? Uh, are there any things that the Arctic tern can do that the blackbird can't do? What, what are some of those things it can do? Well, the blackbird can go probably Mach 5. And uh, the other one can't. Well, so the blackbird can go faster, but the Arctic tern can turn faster. Yeah, okay. What else can the Arctic tern do? Yes. He can feed himself. You have to have a whole bunch of people to refuel the, uh, the blackbird. What else can it do? <laughs> Regrow feathers. It can repair itself. Yeah, good idea. I haven't heard that one, but that's, that's right on the money. What else? The bird doesn't leak when it's sitting on the ground. <laughs> 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 no, I did. It's only when it's flying overhead, right? <laughs> what else can it do? It can fly from the North Pole to the South Pole. Well, the SR-71 can too, but the difference is the Arctic Tern can fly itself. The SR-71 can't do that. Ah, it can reproduce. Big, big difference. So there's a there's a lot of difference, and yet... A lot of people will say the uh, blackbird is designed and the Arctic tern is not. It just happened by, you know, natural evolution. And yet, it is far more complex, <coughs> far more capable than the, uh, than the SR-71. Okay. So there are three reasons I'm going to be talking about uh, to believe that uh, life is designed. The first one is the integrated complexity of the living cell. Uh, the second one is the information code in DNA. And the third one is the apparent design in molecular machines. And we're going to talk about each, uh, each of those. First of all, in the cell, uh, our bodies have trillions of cells. Uh, and each cell has separate compartments uh, with unique 
uh, chemical environments in each department, depending on what that department is supposed to do. Uh, there are controlled access passages between these different compartments, and there are little highways that run between the different, uh, the different compartments with little motorized vehicles that carry things along from one compartment to another. Um, there's microprocessor regulation of, uh, of the cell. There are all these uh, chemical things that go on in the cell that respond to the environment and uh, cause the cell to uh, either reproduce or to make different proteins or to do whatever the cell needs to do. Uh, there are molecular machines. Uh, we call them proteins. Actually, molecular machines are usually made up of several proteins that do the work of the cells. They're cargo haulers, they're switches, uh, they're cables, ropes, and pulleys, particularly that are used for reproduction. Uh, there's energy conversion machinery, um, propulsion machinery, manufacturing machinery, and uh, then machines that unzip, read, and duplicate DNA. And there's also this library of information in the cell that uh, tells the cell how to make all these proteins uh, that, are, that are needed and also how to regulate all those proteins. We'll be talking about those a little bit more. Um, so first we're going to talk about design and DNA. Um, now, DNA is a code. It's a code somewhat like an alphabet. We're going to, you're going to understand how DNA works before this is over. Well, not quite, because nobody really does completely, but you'll have a, an idea. Um, but it has uh, purposeful information. That information is used to specify how to build proteins and other things. Uh, but uh, being a code, the only source of codes uh, that we know about are intelligent minds. Okay, so the, uh, it, it's a code, and the only source of codes we know about uh, are intelligent minds. Okay, now, to get into a little bit of the technical detail. Um, proteins form the cell's structure and uh, the machinery. A protein is a string of amino acids. Okay, amino acids are simply, well, actually they're very simple molecules. Uh, and um, you can see a sort of a chemical representation of four of those uh, amino acids along the bottom, and they hook up in a chain to, uh, to form proteins. There are 20 different kinds of amino acids that are used in, in proteins, uh, and then there are hundreds to thousands of amino acids uh, in a chain to make a protein. So think of them, uh, amino acids, as these little plastic beads that you plug together, okay? And they just sort of plug together and make a, make a long chain uh, and uh, to, form a, uh, to form a protein. I've listed the different kinds of amino acids over here. I'm sure you will remember those uh, indefinitely. Okay, DNA. Uh, DNA is a molecule that folds and twists into these very compact shapes uh, that we call chromosomes. And I've sort of started over on the left with uh, chromosomes. I think that's some kind of a plant cell. Uh, if you start unwinding the chromosomes, you finally get down to this ladder-like structure that is, uh, you know, DNA. Um, the 
think of it, if you think of it as a ladder, the sides of the ladder are alternating molecules of sugar, phosphate, sugar, phosphate, sugar, phosphate. Uh, but then across the rungs of the ladder, we have these things called base pair molecules. Uh, there are four kinds of base pair molecules. We'll talk about those in a second. Um, but anyway, um, uh, humans have 23 uh, sets of chromosomes. Apes have 24. Are they more advanced than we are? Well, I don't know. Dogs have 39, and some flowering plants have, uh, have 100. Okay, so uh, the uh, as I said, the uh, the DNA molecule on the uh, the sides of the ladder are alternating sugars and phosphates. Across the uh, the rungs are base pairs. There are four kinds of base pairs. Uh, we'll call them A, T, C, and G: uh, adenine, thymine, cytosine, and guanine. And um, those are uh, in an order. Uh, A always pairs with T, C always pairs with G, and that's really handy because during cell division, the molecule can split in half, and then you just simply match up the necessary bases uh, to, uh, to complete each half of the, the DNA and make a, a new DNA strand. So these uh, letters, A, T, C, and G, are basically form an alphabet, uh, an alphabet that, uh, that tells how proteins are to be made. Um, and it's the sequence of the letters along the DNA strand uh, that determine uh, what amino acids go into a protein. Uh, now, there is a thing we call a gene. Um, if you're if you're as old as I am, you learned that genes were specific links uh, along a DNA that have all these uh, base pairs that specify a protein. It's not nearly that simple, but for today, we're just going to assume that it is, is fairly simple. Usually what happens is uh, these uh, uh, base pairs code for amino acids. Uh, well, uh, first of all, they're turned into uh, uh, messenger RNA, uh, and uh, those things sometimes split and divide and recombine. And you can get, oh, thousands and thousands of different uh, proteins from just a few thousand uh, strands of DNA. Um, about 2% of DNA is used to specify how proteins are made. The other 98% is junk. Well, at least that's what they used to think. That was probably about 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, but um, much more recent uh, research has shown that at least most of this other DNA, the other 97, 98%, has a function. And a lot of that function is to provide regulation for all the proteins that are in, uh, that are in a cell. So... Instead of a sequence of letters uh, that form words, the DNA uses a sequence of molecules. Um, and three of these letters, A, C, T, and G in a row, uh, specify a, uh, an amino acid. 
And I've got uh, four of them listed there, like uh, GCT specifies the amino acid alanine. So you have three of them specify uh, an amino acid, which is a simple molecule. And then it's the sequence of, the, uh, of these triplets as you go down the DNA that specify the sequence that the amino acids are to be assembled in to build a protein. It's really fairly simple. Yeah, it's, it's more complicated, but basically that's the, uh, you know, the, the basic part of it. And then sequences of codons specify the sequence of amino acids to be used in assembling a protein. And now I'm going to show a quick video. of how it all works.
Okay. That's how DNA works. <laughs> yes. Statistical probability of this happening in evolution. I mean, it seems yeah. so astronomical to me that that alone would be an argument. Hold, hold that question until afterward. Um, and I'll discuss a little bit about it as we go here for proteins. Okay, design and molecular machine. There are hundreds of molecular machines in our cells. Um, we've called them enzymes in the past. Enzymes usually are molecular machines. Uh, and I have another video for you. Okay, uh, I was saying that um, between the, com uh, the compartments in a cell, there are highways, uh, there are openings that open at the right time and close, uh, and there are little molecular machines that go along the highway to carry molecules from one place to another. I'm gonna show you a, a video of that. Sorry, no sound, but uh, this little guy here is grabbing hold of a big protein and pulling it along. I think it's a protein. Now, you have to remember, this is not uh, a creationist idea. This is what's actually happening in biology. You know, this is very straightforward. This is not intelligent design. This is really what's happening. Of course, it is... Uh, a pictorial representation of it. Okay. Uh, one of our favorite machines is the uh, bacterial flagellum. Um, this is what propels some kinds of bacteria. Uh, if, you, uh, if you look at an electron microscope picture of it, it looks like this. It's not quite as clear, so the artists have uh, touched it up just a little bit. But it has a uh, propeller. Now, it doesn't wiggle back and forth. This one rotates. Um, it has a, a universal joint. It has a drive shaft that goes through the, the cell wall. Uh, it has bushings that hook the drive shaft into the cell wall. It's got a, a rotor and a stator, and it's driven by hydrogen ions, that is protons, that uh, go through the motor and give it its, uh, uh, its motion. Um, just look at that for a minute. That's in a very simple bacteria. Is that something that just came about by a random process? Intuitively, I think we'd have to say, no, that's designed by an engineer, right? Okay. Um, now, <clears throat> we're going to talk about evolution because there are two theories about how all that that we've just seen can happen. Uh, one theory is that it happened by... Um, you know, just random chemical interactions. Uh, the other is that it was created by an intelligent agent, 
of some kind. Okay, back uh, in 1953, Miller and Urey did a, an experiment uh, where they put what they thought was the early Earth's atmosphere contents into a flask and they zapped it with electricity. And sure enough, uh, it formed uh, amino acids. And, uh, and since that time, uh, using similar type experiments, they've been able to synthesize all of the amino acids. A big problem is that uh, they didn't think there was any oxygen in the atmosphere at the time, and now we know there probably was, and so the oxygen would have destroyed the reaction. But even given that you can produce amino acids naturally, um, they have never been able to get the amino acids to assemble in a natural way into proteins. Um, and uh, at the time, I remember, I was, I was in grade school, and this was touted as, boy, here is the proof for evolution. Yes? So I've, I've never understood how they can get, by not having any oxygen in the atmosphere and water, um, how do they make that claim that there was just methane and hydrogen without any present water? I don't really know. I don't really know. I get it, but you've got hydrogen in the atmosphere. And my assumption is the way that you've got some sort of evaporation and ozone and all those other things that go on in the normal atmosphere that you wouldn't yeah, yeah that, that would, is an interesting question, and I don't remember the history of it. But uh, let's see. We'll okay. Um, now, uh, Crick. Uh, Let's see, let me back up one here. Okay. Um, now, there, there are serious problems, as I said. One is, is the oxygen in the, uh, in the atmosphere. Um, there are contaminants, including other kinds of amino acids. There are both left-handed and right-handed amino acids, as Mike pointed out last night. Um, and there's no known natural mechanism for assembling the amino acids into a, into a chain, uh, except by the ribosome, the little machine you saw earlier that, uh, that does the assembly. Um, chorality is left-handed and right-handed. Um, and um, okay, if you want some statistics, if you, if you sort of get a rough idea of how much carbon there is in the universe, and uh, or how many molecules there are in the universe, and you allow them to uh, these molecules, which you know we're going to assume are, are uh, we have the same number of amino acids as we have molecules in the universe, and we allow all of them to recombine uh, into 400 amino acid strings every microsecond from the beginning of time. You can work out the statistics on that. It turns out uh, that the probability of getting a 400 uh, amino acid string 
with all left-handed amino acids, given that there are an equal number of left and right-handed amino acids in the batch and no other contaminants, the probability of getting that to happen is less than one in a, in a billion. So even given all the molecules in the universe and all the time in the universe, there is not enough, there are not enough molecules or time to randomly assemble a, a chain 400 uh, amino acids long of all left-handed amino acids. Do the statistics. Very interesting. Um, <clears throat> there's another problem, and that is that even if you do have a chain of all left-handed amino acids, um, the chances of them forming a functioning protein has been calculated to be only 1 in 10 to the 77th power. 10 to the 77th power is close to the number of atoms in the universe. So the, the probability of, of forming a protein by natural processes is so close to zero that I think we can reasonably eliminate it as a possibility. So life did not start by a random chemical process. Even Francis Crick, who uh, discovered the DNA structure, uh, says that an honest man armed with the knowledge available to us now could only state that in some sense the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle. Almost a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have had to have been satisfied to get it going. Okay, so um, let's just try and jump over this problem of getting life started and um, say, okay, suppose it did start somehow and somehow DNA and proteins and cell walls and all this came together to make the first living cell. Of course, we have no explanation for that, how that might have happened naturally. Uh, and let's say, okay, uh, but from there, uh, can you use uh, mutation and natural selection to create new, all the new proteins that are necessary for all the innovations that have occurred in life between the first bacterial cell and us, where we are today? Because there are thousands of innovations, circulatory systems, uh, uh, you know, uh, our, our visual system, um, uh, you know, skeletal system. All these things are innovations that had to come about with new proteins and new protein interactions. So the idea, though, is that these uh, uh, mutations, operated on by natural selection, can cause these uh, can cause these new innovations. Okay, uh, and so here are a list of some of those uh, innovations that we that we have to have. Um, they require the new proteins, and the new proteins, not just new proteins, but they have to work together because most molecular machines, uh, uh, you know, work in complexes of proteins with six or more six or more proteins uh, hooked hooked together. So they have to be able to interact. They have to get the right binding sites. Now. Um, New binding sites for more than pre, uh, three proteins are out of reach for a neo process. A guy named Michael Behe uh, has written a book 
the edge of evolution. And what he's done is he's looked at all of the laboratory results uh, for advantageous uh, mutations in uh, uh, malarial parasites, uh, 10 to the 20th of those, HIV, which, uh, you know, the AIDS virus, which mutates very quickly, and also 10 to the 13th E. coli cells. And he, uh, he says that, you know, at the very best, let's assume that we have one new binding site between proteins uh, in 10 to the 20th cells. We've never seen this, but he says, let's assume that it can happen. Uh, and he said that we might expect to see two coordinated binding sites among three proteins in 10 to the 40th cells. Uh, you know, for random processes, you multiply probabilities. Uh, and so to get three proteins interacting together would require 10 to the 40th cells. The problem is, is that that's the number of cells that have existed on Earth from the beginning of life. And so uh, we wouldn't expect to see any more than three proteins interacting together, and yet we see thousands of indications of complexes of proteins working together to give new innovations. Yes? They looked, uh, the laboratory results are that they've had that many cells uh, grown in the laboratories. What's that? Um, you know, they do batches, and then they, they look for new characteristics and, you know, new, new things. A lot of it has to do with, uh, oh, resistance to antibiotics and resistance to other medicines and things like that. They were looking for any mutations that gave an advantage. At the cellular level, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the question is, uh, can a functional protein develop a new function through mutation at all? And um, there, there are some researchers, Doug Axe and Ann Gager, uh, they're up at the Discovery Institute. Uh, they have experimented with proteins that have the the very most similar structures they can find. And these are two of the proteins they, they used. I forgot the, the name of the proteins. But if, if you look at those, you can say, boy, those are really close together in structure. A lot of proteins are not nearly as close. And so they, and uh, each protein has a present function. And so what they were trying to do is mutate protein A so that it would take on protein B's function. And what they found was that it would take at least seven mutations, and uh, they weren't able to do it in seven mutations, so it takes more than seven, uh, to, uh, to change the function of one protein to the other, even though they're very similar. And then they used a population genetics model uh, to see how long it would take for seven coordinated mutations to happen. And their estimate that it would take far longer than 15 billion years. And so the idea that you can develop a new protein from an old protein in the period that life has existed on Earth, 
um, is just doesn't work. Okay, so you can't even get one new protein, much less all these new innovations that are that are needed for complex life. And then there are the problems with orphan genes. Uh, every type of life, every organism, has orphan genes. These are genes that um, code for proteins uh, that have a, a very unique se uh, sequence. In other words, they produce proteins that are very different than any other proteins that, uh, that are there, very different in, in structure. Um, and so the question is, if we can't get two proteins that are extremely similar, or, or, to, or one protein, to change its function uh, into a, another protein that has a very similar structure, how can we possibly get these complex proteins that uh, have totally new, new structures? Uh, sorry, the mathematics just doesn't work out. So evolution is very truly a, a theory in crisis today. And uh, the idea that we can get uh, chemicals to uh, combine to form proteins uh, and uh, DNA is even much more complicated. Uh, cell walls is uh, extremely improbable. And uh, the idea that we can get mutations that give us new innovative structures uh, in biology, also extremely improbable. So Darwinian evolution is just really not a, an adequate explanation for, for life. So uh, how can we explain this design in biology? Um, well, I think uh, the best explanation is given by Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and every living thing according to its kind. Okay, so we'll just go back to that one. So uh, hopefully, let's see, we have uh, quite a bit of time here, and I was hoping for that so we could talk about some questions and comments. Yes? Uh, that's, a good, uh, that's a good question. They have several responses. Um, their first response is, if you don't believe in evolution, you're being motivated by religious, uh, you know, religious beliefs. Okay, so you're not to be, not to be believed. Um, they tend to ignore it. Um, but there are some uh, uh, some ideas that are that that they're trying to to work on. Uh, they're working on a. Uh, well, one of those is that there is some kind of a self-organizing principle in the universe that caused these molecules to come together, some unknown uh, you know, force of, of nature that caused the molecules to come together and then for this uh, Darwinian evolution to happen. Uh, there's a guy named Stuart Kaufman who was up at the Santa Fe Institute that uh, was trying to work that out. So far, they haven't really found anything. Um, and the... Uh, Is this in terms of 
of the uh, quantum physics effects, or is this in terms of some sort of you know, at the at the molecular level, we understand chemistry and, and quantum effects pretty well, and yet we don't see any of these self-organizing principles in those. Right, I mean, their approach is it down the path of something rational like quantum maybe chaos, maybe chaos theory. Chaos. Yeah, but uh, like I say, so far. And, and really, they've pretty much uh, given up on that. So how do they approach all this with the uh, second law of thermodynamics? You know, the second law of thermodynamics is not a problem uh, for any of the things I've talked about today. Um, because as long as you have a source of energy flowing through a system, uh, you, can, you can get order uh, out of things that were disordered before. Uh, however, what you can't explain is the formation of information and the information in DNA. Uh, you can't explain that by random processes. Where the complexity? Yeah. And it's not just the complexity, it's, the, it's what they call the specified complexity. Because um, you take a, a, a random um, assembly of amino acids and uh, you could say, well, that's complex. Uh, you take uh, the uh, the way our mountains look. That that's complex, uh, and you can expect things that are that are complex. But the thing is, uh, specified complexity. So in this complexity, you have complexity that specifies, in this case, how to build proteins. Um, it'd be very much like um, you know using our our alphabet to to write a book. Uh, you could just type randomly and it's nonsense. It's complex, but it's nonsense. But if you type with, you know, the, the words that we, that we use today, uh, that would be specified complexity because it is specific to our, our language and, you know, our way of communicating. Mm -hmm. So they don't, they, I guess the question is, they don't address any of those? Um, yeah, well, basically what they say is that, uh, you know, that somehow Darwinian evolution has done it, even though they're starting to give up on Darwinian evolution and they're looking for new paradigms, self-organizing principles that haven't worked out. You know, they're really, they're really kind of in trouble today. Another another thing that they're talking yeah, as a matter of fact, it sounds a lot like that. Another thing they're talking about is natural design. Now, if you t think about natural design, that's an oxymoron. 
design doesn't come from natural, from natural forces. There's some kind of idea that there is this life force in the universe uh, among some people, mostly philosophers, I don't think the, the scientists go along with it too much, that has uh, somehow organized you know, these, these things and, and made them happen. Now, we know what that life force is. Yes, do they know in the cell with all the motor functions that are taking place? Like you had the one video without the sound where pulling this thing. This like was. Moment, you know? <laughs> um, what, do we know how many approximately of those things taking place within the cell? How many are yeah, there, there are probably a, a few thousand molecular machines in the cell. In one cell, there's a few thousand molecular yeah. machines. Yeah, like uh, for example, uh, every cell has um, the, the kinesin uh, to haul things. Uh, it, it's got, um, oh, uh, you know, energy producing equipment. Uh, there, there's, um, in the mitochondrial DNA, there's uh, a structure that has a, a motor that uh, spins a turbine that takes, uh, well, ATP, which is kind of like a, an energetic battery, or it takes ADP. And it adds a phosphate to make ATP, which is, uh, you know, uh, like a battery that actually does the powering of the, of the things in the, in the cell. We have the ribosome that hooks all the amino acids together to make proteins. Uh, they have uh, DNA synthase, which uh, uh, takes apart the DNA, uh, splits apart the DNA molecule and replicates it. Uh, RNA synthase, um, just thousands of these molecular machines that do various little functions in the in the cell. And, it, and it's thousands of kinds of machines within each kind. There's, there, are, there are multitudes of, of each kind within, within the cell. Yeah, yeah. At the time of Darwin, the view of the cell was essentially the way we look at an egg. Mm -hmm. Goop and two different kinds of goop with a shell yes. around it. Protoplasm, a little no bag of protoplasm. The complexity of the cells didn't even approach yeah. what we now. And even the fact that these are cartoons, <clears throat> you can actually see this kind of stuff in an electron microscope. Absolutely, these yeah. These are not made up stories. Yeah. These are just made to be clearer. It's real stuff. What we can actually see with an electron microscope. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's going a lot faster than it shows here. Um, now, you may think that, boy, this is, this is amazing that it goes so fast. But the thing is, they're extremely small. Uh, and in engineering, you know that you can make things that are extremely small move a lot faster without making the forces too great for them to accommodate. So they're very small and very fast. Um, <clears throat> like, for example, I think it takes about a second to assemble an average size protein uh, out of amino acids in a ribosome. And that's, that's moving right along. That would be running that in, in high speed. Uh, let me say something else. You know, we, we started off talking about the, the two birds. And um, when you look at a, a cell and its complexity, we, we can say intuitively that's designed. Or we look at the bird and we can say intuitively that's designed, and I think our intuition is very good, but it's harder to prove it. Where we can prove it 
is at the molecular level and some of the statistics that I talked about. And you asked about DNA. I gave you some statistics for proteins. DNA is more complicated than proteins. It would be more difficult to assemble. So we don't have enough atoms in the universe or time in the universe to assemble even one strand of, of DNA. Yeah. By the way, Oh, I made so many assumptions when I said that, that, uh, yeah, because um, most of the universe is hydrogen. You need carbon. Uh, there's no way that you could get all the atoms in the universe interacting in this way. There's no mechanism for making them interact. Uh, but statistically, it is extremely improbable. And then you start adding these practical factors in and, and forget it. It's just not a, not a reasonable thing. Yes. Yeah, Mike, I had a question about the 2% of the uh, DNA that's uh, non-junk and then the 98% that was thought to be junk. Mm -hmm. um, and I missed, I missed some comment that you gave, but could you kind of elaborate on that <coughs> and comment on why that's so important? Ah, uh, why is that important? Okay, so 2% of DNA codes for proteins. Now, it's, it's a little more complicated than that, but 2% codes for proteins. The other 98% used to be thought of as junk, but they've just uh, recently done, it's called the, the ENCODE uh, experiment, where they have looked for function in this non-coding 98% of the DNA. And they've, they've found that the DNA is transcribed. That means it's copied. And if it's copied, that implies that the cell has a use for it. Um, and um, its use is for, generally speaking, for regulation of proteins in the cell. It tells when, uh, you know, when to read some strands of DNA and not others, and when to produce some proteins and not others, all the kind of regula regulation activities that, uh, that you need to, to run a cell. There's also uh, some indication that it's used for organizing the DNA, because DNA is not just you know, a random twisted uh, ribbon of, uh, of amino acids. Uh, it is a highly structured library with references to other places in the library that, uh, that the molecular machines need to go to get the other parts that they need. There's a lot of cross-referencing. There's a lot of spacing so that the, uh, the machines that read the DNA will read it in the right place. Um, and so, I think they're up to at least 90% now of that, what they call junk DNA, uh, is, is used by the cell. And I think it's probably going to go to 100%, but we'll, we'll see. Um, so what the, uh, what the evolutionists, you know, at first what they believed is, okay, to get Darwinian evolution to work, we need to have some kind, we, we've got a cell where all the proteins are, are useful, all the DNA is, is useful. And so if we mutate one of, the, uh, one of the genes to make a new function, well, that destroys the purpose of the original one and the cell's going to die. So somehow the, uh, 
you know, accidents happen and the DNA replicates. And now we have this replicated material that can mutate to, um, to give us new, new functions. And so the, uh, the evolutionists said this 98% junk is just exactly what we would expect to see in an in evolutionary process. But now we're seeing that this isn't junk DNA at all. It's useful stuff. It didn't have the, the real potential to mutate into new functions. And so now what the evolutionists are saying is, by golly, you know, that's exactly what we'd expect to see for an evolutionary process. <laughs> yes? Well, in that, it, one thing that I've read is that that is a, a, kind of a neat deal that both evolution science and creation science agree now that that 98% is, uh, is useful, is a useful deal. What, so yeah. if, if evolution scientists have changed their theory, then, hey, if you're an optimist, you think maybe there are some times they can't actually come along to, to see anymore. <laughs> To, to mm -hmm. see, see the reality of what's going on. Some of them... Uh, but at the same time, too, when you question them, too, was talking about well, evolution science who uh, can't see the new things coming along. There was uh, something else I read about the uh, old bone structure was found. The... Uh, I, don't, I don't know what the term was. The scientist, anyway, who was then looking at the old bone structure and found even live DNA in this that had been determined to be millions of years old in the bone structure and uh, then found the material that was actually you know, rubbery or something like that still had some to it. And the scientists, evolution scientists then came back to say, uh, well, evidently we got it wrong. First off, we know that this, that, that since life began millions of years ago, she gave the number of millions of years, then we know then that something else must be wrong here because you know there must be something wrong in our dating or something like that here. So evolution scientists who then say that creation scientists are going in first to say, well, you're believing the Bible first. Well, here's the deal that no other, no other evolution scientist is coming back to say, wait a minute, we're looking first at old earth here and, and biasing with old earth, which I believe they are. Well, actually, I have a bias towards old earth uh, very definitely, but not towards evolution, as I think you saw from this talk. Um, okay, part of the thing is the scientists today are looking at this, what they used to call junk, and uh, some of them are starting to agree that it has a function, but believe me, there are a lot that are holding out and saying, no, 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 they're all wrong. But the evidence is that it's not junk. There's another quick Doug. My question. What do you see as the relationship between science and faith, and science and the scriptures? Between science, oh boy, that's a good question. Um, I had a, a friend one time who has a, a PhD in uh, in biophysics, and she says, you know, I was I was kind of afraid to really dig into uh, biophysics because I would I was afraid that it would shake my faith. And, but she did it anyway, and just the opposite thing happened. Uh, and so I think good science and faith go hand in hand. After all, look, uh, you know, the Bible uh, is God's word. Uh, creation is God's word. He spoke it into existence. The two have to agree as long as you interpret both of them properly. Okay, now, uh, as your second question, I think the issue here is how do we interpret the Bible? 
can we allow evidence from outside the Bible to influence how we interpret the Bible? Uh, and there are some people who would say no, and there are some people who would say yes, and I'm one of the ones that say yes in a in a limited way. Um, and uh, for example, um, I know there's a lot of poetry in the in the Bible that says that the earth is fixed; it's not moving. Uh, and in, until about 1500, that's what people believed. But today, most of us don't believe that. Most of us believe that the believe that the earth, you know, goes around the sun and it rotates. Why do we believe that? I can't feel it. Okay, I can't really see it because it's just as likely that all these things are going around the earth. It's because of scientific evidence. So in that case, we have allowed scientific evidence to influence our interpretation of the Bible. Um, so, okay, good science and faith are, to me, very closely linked. They're, oh, they're all part of the same story. Uh, but we have some differences in how we interpret, uh, interpret the Bible. Yes? I just want to ask about the time element we're talking about here. I mean, there's uh, science that was made to find Earth. But you're talking about over 13 billion years to develop that kind of cellular structure. So how are they handling that? Are they saying that they're, you guys are just oh. backing up the age of the Earth to match the time that it takes to build that kind of structure? No. Um, <clears throat> you would have to have universes on top of universes and time on top of time to give enough time for anything like evolution to occur. So it doesn't matter whether it's six days or 15 billion years, there is not nearly enough time or matter to make these things happen by a, a naturalistic process. So how are evolutionists trying to manage that? Yeah. And in the next talk, we're going to talk about that idea. That's one of the main, the main things, yeah. John. Mike, with uh, you know the discovery of some of the soft tissue mm -hmm. T. Rex, as an example, that's been strongly confirmed that it, that they do have these yeah. cellular structures. Now, obviously, it's it's dead; it's not living. But I was curious when a cell, you know, when, it, when an animal dies or tissue dies, how long does the DNA uh, maintain its its cohesion, you know, it's a long, you know, mm -hmm. long double helix. Does it, does it start breaking apart? When does that happen? What do they find when they look at a, a cell in a fossilized, uh, you know, kind of yeah. situation? The only information I have on that, which is uh, not real complete, is they've done some studies on um, a particular kind of bird from New Zealand where they have representatives going back um, almost uh, a billion years. Um, no, no, that's not right. Almost a hundred million years. And they've done statistical analysis and they believe that DNA, you might be able to find strings of DNA, I don't know how long, but strings of DNA uh, that are possibly 60 to 80 million, no, 60 to 80 100,000 years old. Okay, so that's, that's DNA. Um, proteins are more stable than DNA. 
And so some scientists believe that, uh, that proteins, particularly if they're wound into tight little bundles, could last for quite a long time. Um, the truth is, when they found this, uh, this material in the bones, they were surprised. No question about that. They didn't think it would that last that long. And so I think the jury's still out on how long that material can last. We'd love to say that it can't last that long. Maybe not. Other people would say, well, it can last that long because obviously it has. Well, maybe not. Let's look at the evidence and see what it says as time goes on. Yes? What happens at the size of the strands to like 150 and 400? And what is the average? Is there an average size of a function? Uh, yes. Uh, let's see. 400 is the median length of a protein in a uh, E. coli bacteria. The bacterium. 400 uh, Yeah, 400 amino acids, right. Um, yeah. In other organisms, I, I don't know. That's the only one I've really, I've really seen. So several thousand uh, for some proteins. Um, and there are probably a few that only have a few tens. But the median is 400 for a uh, uh, E. coli bacteria. Yes, any other questions, comments? <laughs> yes? Okay, I didn't, I didn't hear everything you said, so repeat your question. <laughs> um, it's about DNA, and it sounds sort of sci-fi, uh -huh. but you know, if they could really create a new creature by, I don't know what you would call it, scientific splicing DNA. Oh, I see. But, um, you know, if that can happen in the near future, if scientists can do that, and I think, um, to me, I feel like it's an threat to God in a way, because it's like, in Genesis 1, it's like that's made every creature according to its own kind. Mm -hmm. And if, especially if they mess with the human genome, but this is something that maybe the younger generation could face if it's, I don't know, if it's sci-fi, but whatever. Um, you know, that's a moral issue that maybe they yep. would have to face, and I think that's important for the young Christian. And I don't know what you as a scientist think about Well, let me kind of explore that. Um, okay, first of all, uh, the, they can construct DNA with machines. Uh, they, they take very carefully controlled environments, uh, very purely refined uh, material, but they can construct DNA. Um, they can copy DNA. In other words, take the, uh, the base pair sequences and copy and make a strand of DNA with their machines that copy it. One problem they have is that they have no idea 
how to try and get a certain function to arise out of a certain DNA code. We don't know that. We can copy, but we can't innovate. Now, you know, let's just say someday maybe we can. We can figure out a, uh, a, co a, a sequence of, uh, of uh, base pairs that'll give us some new great function. And let's say we build that into something. Now, we've, we've kind of done that with a lot of plants' hybrids uh, to improve their performance. But we've always copied something from one plant and put it in another. So can we innovate some new thing that will go in? I tend to doubt it. It's, it to me, the code is so uh, amazing that man is never going to be able to innovate with that, with that code. But let's just say that we can. Um, would that be immoral or something? Uh, perhaps it would. Would it be a challenge to God? I don't think so. I don't think there is any challenge to God. So I think, uh, I think what we've seen today, uh, I hope I've given you a little bit of an idea of the complexity of how biology works. And uh, being an engineer, I look at that and I just marvel and say, this is an incredible feat of engineering that is far beyond anything I can even imagine. And so I think, uh, to me, it's a form of worship, glorifying God for what he's, uh, for what he's done. It, it is truly amazing. So how's our time here? Time to go. Okay. Well, thank you for coming. And uh, in the next session, we'll be looking at uh, creation and cosmology for those of you who are going to be here for that one.